Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. We have a big show today. We're going to be talking about bowel cancer, amongst other things. So, hope you're sitting down. In the studio with me is Dr. Laura. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Yeah, I'm, I'm sat down in the chair, but I'm really excited with all the <laughs> that we have to cover today. Oh, my God. <laughs> we'll push through. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we'll be okay. We have some amazing guests comes in. We're trying to get all the humour out because this is a very serious topic, but we, you can't talk about bowel cancer without a few of those sorts of jokes coming in. Yes, yeah, so we've got to get that we'll out, get of that out of the way first. And then we'll get into the serious stuff with our guests, I think. And I, look, it's lucky Chris KP's not here. Thank goodness. Yeah, I mean, he'd have get, a field day and he, it would go for the whole hour. It would. We're it, gonna, would it wouldn't stop. We're going to sh** can it in the first few minutes. And then we'll, we'll move on. So we're going to do some news at the very end of the show, hopefully, folks. Uh, but in the studio with us now, first up is Marina Yakow, who is a final year PhD student at the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute. Good morning and welcome back. Thanks, Dr. Shane and Dr. Laura. Good to be here. It's good to have you. Now, you were part of our last 20 and 20 group. I was, yeah. So we're going to give you a little more than a minute this time. Yeah, thank you. So that'd be good. <laughs> we also have your supervisor, Dr. Lisa Milkey, who is the laboratory head at the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute. Welcome, Lisa. Good morning. Thanks for having us. How did us. your uh, student con you into this one? Yeah, <laughs> Marina really has roped me in here. <laughs> yeah, that's great. They, oh, I suspect uh, some people wouldn't know where the ONJ, as we'll call it, um, is based. It's out at the Austin, right? Tell us a a little bit, uh, Lisa, just about the the centre. Yeah, we're based at the Austin Hospital and next door is the Olivia Newton-John Cancer and Wellness and Research Centre. And then within that, you have the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute. And so it's a big building full of both research and uh, clinical treatment and hospital wards as well. Yeah, it's full of and, – and the focus is all on cancer, so yep. across the board. Yeah, all yep. types of cancer, yep. And it's a relatively new institute, isn't it? I mean, when I say new, what, 25 years, 20 years? Oh, our research institute is younger than that, only right. 13 years. 13 years, yep. Yep, so we're a pretty young research institute. We're still growing um, – and, yeah, really lots of exciting stuff happening. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I know uh, when I was back at the University of Melbourne, you are having a lot to do with, obviously, the Austin Hospital and, um, and the whole precinct there, Austin Health, and, and, and what you guys are doing, which is, which is amazing. But today we're here to talk about bowel cancer. Now, Marina, I don't know how you and I got onto this. I think yeah. um, there was a moment, and Laura's going to laugh here, but there was a moment where I uh, may have tweeted about doing my special um you know gift that the government sent me um, when you get above 50 you know, which i think is insulting it's just insulting in the federal government you're 50 for five minutes and they send you out this package that says do something disgusting <laughs> and yeah. uh and of course as a you know person of my vintage i did what we all do and i put it off and i put it off for 18 months so i didn't do this test when i received it so this is a bowel cancer screening test is that right Marie? yes that's right yep. yep and you have to send back a small fecal sample yep which um i didn't know how small when i first got the package i thought you know what do i do i have to unload here what, what's <laughs> yeah. required yeah. and i felt for australia post yeah i did <laughs> i thought i'm not sure what they know what they're <laughs> they're transporting um so i put it off yep. and i left it on the shelf and got to the point where it expired 
And my, my good wife, she then said, well, I'm going to order you another one. You're doing this. And she even saved an ice cream container for me. And that was scary. That was scary because I thought, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. <laughs> it was totally unnecessary. The ice cream container yeah. was not necessary, yeah. which I didn't know. I would have done it sooner if I hadn't known about yeah. that, actually. So sat on the shelf for a while, got another one, finally did it. And I have to say then there was a lot of anticipation once I sent it in as to whether or not it would come back okay. Yeah. And as a, as a carer myself, so I have significant caring roles, you often put your own health second. Yeah. And so got, got that back, which was clear, which I felt very good about. But it took me 20 months to do this. Yeah. So with this screening, I mean, how many people do it? Yeah, that's the problem. So first of all, is that it's it's not until you hit 50 years old, which you yeah. said is is a bit of a bummer, yeah. right? But to me, I think that's great. Don't you think when we're babies, the last thing people want to do is collect poo from us and diapers. But here we are, we hit 50 years old and all of a sudden people want our poo. I think it's <laughs> it's funny how life turns around, isn't it? Yeah. But um, I think it's um, – so not many people do it, and that's one of the biggest problems. And yep. actually on top, like to add to that problem is the fact that if you don't do that, many people who have bowel cancer didn't know they had it because not many present with a lot of symptoms that would right. be very unique to bowel cancer. It would right. be other symptoms that are quite common to a lot of illnesses. Mm. And so doing that screening test really just you know, gives us a, a, a look into your colon essentially. And so um, it's so important to get done. Um, in fact, now there's a huge push from a lot of um, big advocates, including some of our own patient advocates that we work with at, at O&J, um, who are really wanting to lower the age. So you're saying 50. We're saying no. Go down to 40 even because yeah. there's this increase in incidence of early onset bowel cancer. And if, if, if you don't do it early, if you don't get in there, you have no idea you had it until it's quite late and you have yeah. very limited treatment options and all, all that sort yeah. of stuff. All right, let's dive in. Yeah. Um, yeah. You Into can, shit. <laughs> however you <laughs> – you guys must have great conversations where you end up at a pub and someone says, <laughs> what do you do? So, we well, <laughs> let's go. We literally yeah. collected – yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about what bowel cancer is, first of all, because yes. I think this is one of the things that, you know, and I've, I've dealt with this on the show over the years when we talk about things like ovarian cancer and it can yeah. mean many different things. Where do we sit with bowel cancer? What what is bowel cancer? What parts of the body does it affect? Yeah. Um, what do we see? Yeah, so essentially your your large bowel, so this is the large intestine in your gut, is where um, cancer can start. And it can be anywhere um, in the colon itself, so the large intestine or mm -hmm. the bowel. So these are all interchangeable terms for the same, um, I suppose, anatomy. and um, Or it can also be towards the um, distal part, so towards the end of the the bowel, which is the rectum. So often you'll hear some people have rectal cancer or colon cancer. It's all fits under the umbrella of bowel cancer, right. essentially. Yeah. And in terms of cancers, I mean, what does that mean? Like what, what sort of things happen to the body when, yeah. when I, you know, if I get a cancer, is it contained? Like, you know, like a, you often hear about cancers that spread very rapidly, yeah. like blood cancers and particular cancers. But what, what is the sort of, I guess, the overall sort of view of a bowel cancer? Yeah. So bowel cancer, look, in its early stages, it's essentially a polyp. You'll, you'll, you know, people who go in early for uh, colonoscopy or even do the bowel screening test, mm -hmm. for example, um, we may pick up that there are polyps or a small sort of tumor that's maybe not as cancerous. It's in its early stages still that can easily be removed by surgery. Okay. Um, and then, of course, it can also go undetected for so long because, as I said, the symptoms are quite common for other illnesses if you are lucky enough to get symptoms. Mm. Um, 
Otherwise, what can often happen is the first place it metastasizes to is to the liver. And so we'll hear about that a little bit later with another one of our guest speakers. But that's often the first places um, it does metastasize to. And when you think about the colon function and the bowel function, right, that's where a lot of the really important processes of of our um, biological function occur. So it's where our food is essentially passes by and, and of course, um, all the let's say all the nasties get collected and then essentially it washes out of our body. So if there's cancer there, a lot of these functions are, you know, uh, tampered with, let's say. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, you also have the largest um, uh, body of microbes that exist within our gut and they exist right there. And so we need to make sure that they are as diverse as possible because we all know right now that the gut microbiome is important for so many things something i want to know straight away marina i don't want to take you back um from going talking about the microbiome which is one of my favorite subjects but i want to know some general stats on genetic association age range i'm presuming it's old if these tests are being sent out at 50 and male versus female yeah great questions so you know the more stereotypical bowel cancer stats are that it occurs in um, people aged 50 and above it's one of the leading causes of cancer death in australia the second leading cause, actually. And um, the stats actually show us that males are often more susceptible to it when they're older, so above 50, than females are. Um, We don't quite know why yet, um, but uh, there is some research going on right now that's looking at those differences. But what's really interesting is that there's been a huge shift in that kind of space because what we've realized is, let's say over the past um, maybe 20, 30, 50 years, um, the increase in global incidence of early onset colorectal cancer or bowel cancer has increased dramatically. So what that means, so what does early onset mean? We're talking people aged 25 to 49 years old. Now, that's really young. These are people that are going completely undetected in the health system because, as we just mentioned, you're not receiving your kids until 50 years old. So this must be one of the few cancers then where the uh, mortality rate is higher yeah, for younger, younger people. people. Is it that is, right? It is the it is the number one cancer um, causing deaths in young people. So aged between twenty five to forty nine years old. Yeah. So people who are born in the nineteen nineties have double the risk now of getting um, colon cancer or bowel cancer, and they have quadruple the risk of getting rectal cancer. So right. in their rectum, compared to people that were born in the 1950s. That's a huge shift, right? Yeah, that's a big change. We're talking it? about people that are still existing currently right now together. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting to me when we talk about healthcare because, you know, we, uh, you know, dare I say, we have a bit of a repair care system yeah. in the way the healthcare system is orientated rather than prevention care, which is, you know, what we really should be doing to save money, to save people's health, to save the families that care for them, et cetera, et cetera. And these tests, you know, as I say, you know, it doesn't look complicated. It's not a, to be honest, it took a lot longer to fill out the form than to do the actual test. (laughs) And that's because, you know, well, to be fair, my handwriting is not great. So I wanted to take care so they could work out that it was me and, you know, not one of my kids. Uh, But, the, the actual test was fairly simple. Uh, if you compare that to things like blood tests or, or any imaging, you know, far more extensive um, by comparison, and yet this test is something that presumably we should be able to roll out to, I don't know, everyone over the age of 25. Right. Uh, you know, what's yeah. the big deal? Yeah, how, often, exactly. how often is it recommended? So, you know, I hit, you know, hit 50, did mine, a little bit late, you know, yeah. like my car services, and uh, how often should that test be done? 
I think it's an annual thing that gets um, sent out once you hit 50 years old. Um, and then if there are any indication of, you know, some sort of disease happening yeah. from that test, they often send you off for a colonoscopy. And if that gets you all clear, you don't have to do that for five years. For five years, yeah. Which is excellent, right? And yeah. that's, it seems, as you just said, it seems so simple. You're actually doing this in the comfort of your own home. Remember that. You're not going out to a hospital, waiting in line anywhere. You're not having to go get, uh, you know whatever some shot or yeah. something for a scan or anything like that so so let, let's just for because laura's got many questions yeah, about see, <laughs> she does but I, I just want to give people the absolute details of this so if you're yeah. eating breakfast folks just pause because yep. this is happening yes. um the details are very simple they give you uh what i would call a courtesy sheet of paper yes which you put over and this is uh, biodegradable and flushable you put it in your toilet do your business. You know, you can be listening to tunes, listen to this show. Mm-hmm. You know, some yeah. people like Why wouldn't you be? It, it helps people listen to this show sometimes, I find. And especially when Laura's on. Um, <laughs> and so you do your business, it sits there. They give you something akin to a toothpick. Yeah. You know, which you just, the smallest, just a, just a touch. Poke. You know, just not too much, not too little. Yeah. Just a poke. And then you put, it, you put that into a little sealable vial. Yeah. Seal it up. Sealed up again. I, I put like 25 seals on it just to make yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then off you go to Australia Post. If you've had some poor experiences with Australia Post lately, this is a bit of payback, I find. You know, when I put <laughs> yeah, in, I was yeah. like, yes. take that. You know, you left that package. It was late. It went, you know, it came from Brisbane to Melbourne, but it yeah. went via Adelaide. I'm not happy. Um, anything like that, basically, you know, it's a little bit of payback. So yes. I found a little bit. That was kind of nice for me. Yeah. And that's it. So simple, right? And then a couple of weeks later, you know, you, if you're like me, a yeah. bit of health anxiety, yeah. freaking out for about 10 days, then you get this note in the post that says, hey, you're good. Yeah. No worries. And that's it. Like, it's not – and if you – colonoscopy by comparison, there's oh, some prep. Yeah. You've got to drink pleasant. some really ugly drink. And, and no matter how much, how many shots you've had in your time, trust me, this is nothing. It's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not fun. You've got to clean that area out oh. because uh, the person doing the colonoscopy – they, they, want, they, 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 want a, they want clear tunnel vision. They do, exactly. So, you know, that takes a lot more work. So this is an easy path, a very easy path. Now, Laura, go. Shane, I needed to know the intermediate in, your, in the process you just described. Marina, how do you detect cancer in poo? Yeah, so that's the thing. Mm. So there's um, – so actually, so even before that, you can just take a look every now and then when you do go to take – a shit in the toilet. Yeah. Just have a look at your poop. Does it look normal? Are there? Is there any signs of blood? Is the color different? That kind of thing. So there's always that step first, right? But then um, even before, so on a more molecular level, I suppose there's a lot of tests that can get done to, to detect some tumor cells um, present or any other kind of um, DNA that um, pops up from that look abnormal compared to what we normally see in normal poop. So it's all like some molecular lab stuff that I'm sure we can all do in the lab. Yeah, interesting. Now, the treatments are fairly limited um, once yeah. you get to a advanced stage. So this is the problem, isn't it? Most people yes. are and, – and I think this is very similar to when we talk about ovarian cancer where many of the symptoms of ovarian cancer are very similar to what you know, many people with uteruses go through every month, right? Yeah. So it's not that dissimilar to – and, and what is often actually ghastly, there's don't worry about it, it's just normal, take some naps and go home. And that, that causes significant problems. What, what sort of symptoms do you end up with um, with bowel cancer? Yeah, so, that, so again, as I said, these are things that you probably don't often – that's not the first thing that comes to mind when you get these symptoms. 
we've spoken to some of our patient advocates and they've said things like um, fatigue or um, fevers or chills or abdominal pain or some of them actually had no um, nothing at all. It was just a matter of like they went in uh, to get a blood test and saw some drops and and some markers and they followed that up and it just became, you know, so that's the problem is that often it's not until it's stage three stage four where as you can imagine as a tumor gets larger it's starting to really physically take over a lot and so people start to realize but i guess the other thing is as i mentioned before blood in your poo yeah very simple yeah interesting all right lisa i think we've um we've passed um (laughs) marina she's we're done we're putting as many of these poo jokes in as possible yeah uh (laughs) Now, Lisa, you, you work in immunotherapies, which I think, you know, we, we've spoken about this. I remember probably 20 years ago on the show, I said something that, you know, was probably outrageous at the time, but the idea that immunotherapies would take over as, as the, the number one cancer treatment that we would have available because our bodies are smarter than we are as scientists. Let's just put it that way, right? And they're really good at dealing with it. Our, our bodies deal with cancer all the time, don't they? Um, like, you know, that's what our immune system does, right? Whenever there's an error, they clean it up, right? Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Your immune cells, they do have the innate ability to recognize tumor cells. And that's exactly what we work on in the lab, studying immune cells in the gut, looking at how they can recognize tumor cells and how they can yeah, fight against cancer. Yeah. Are the immune cells in the gut, this is where Laura's going to get excited because, you know, T-cell girl. Uh, are they different to the immune cells in the rest of the body? They can be. We do definitely see there are unique populations of immune cells in the gut. And they are enriched in that environment. The gut is very, very much enriched in immune cells in general. Mm. And there are unique populations in the gut that are not located or they're much less abundant in other parts of the body. Right. In terms of immunotherapy, like where are we at? Because we, we hear some great stories about various immunotherapies for certain cancers. Where, where are we sitting with bowel cancer with regards to immunotherapy? Yeah, in terms of bowel cancer, it's not a cancer that is really a poster child for immunotherapy, but we are finding that immunotherapy can now and will be in the future be used in, in more patients with bowel cancer. At mm-hmm. the moment, it's most widely used in patients with, who have stage 4 disease, so in, or later stages of disease. And um, only small subsets of patients will respond to immunotherapy at the moment. But what we're finding and other groups around the world are finding as well that there are larger cohorts of patients that will respond to immunotherapy, particularly in earlier stages of the disease. And some large clinical trials performed overseas have shown very promising results. And so there are also organised or in the process of organising some of those clinical trials um, here in Melbourne as well. The Olivia Newton-John and Austin Hospital will be part of those trials that will be they're not they're not open yet but they're still in the planning stages mm. and so we have a yeah, great hope for immunotherapy or the, the current immunotherapy treatments to be used in bowel cancer yeah it's wild so in in your lab i mean describe what it's like in there you know you you know i've seen you know, there's a lot of pipettes and stuff i'm a physics guy so it all looks the same to me but what what do you do in the lab like are you getting actual tissue samples from patients and the surgeons keeping those for you like what what does the testing of this look like for you yeah, so in the lab we will um, take t- 
tissue samples from surgeons. So you're going to hear from Marilly in a little bit, mm. and he will give us tissue samples from bowel cancer patients. We also collaborate with um, people working in the pathology department, and they will um, pass on tissue samples to us as well. And we can use a lot of different techniques to study the immune cells within the tissues, within the tumour, and also the surrounding bowel as well. We can see signals and changes in the immune cells there, um, and that can give us some clues to what's happening in the tumour as well. Hmm. And will this be a very specific to an individual type approach or is it sort of one size fits all? I mean, how does the immunotherapy work for an individual? Do I get the same one that Laura would get or, you know, is it something that you take my cells and train them up? How does how does that play out? Yeah, so the immunotherapies that are currently being trialled and are used in bowel cancer at the moment, they are known as immune checkpoint blockade. So mm-hmm. every patient would get the same type of drug. Yep. But we do look at the patient's type of tumour because we know a certain type of tumour will respond much better to compared to other types of tumours. And so those types of tumours usually have better immune cell infiltrate And so we know from that signal that the um, immune system has already been activated. And so it's much more likely that those patients will respond to the immunotherapy or immune checkpoint blockade. Right. So so their immune system is already kind of trying to do the job, but failing. Is that the way to to say it? Yeah, it's not necessarily failing. It has been activated, but the immunotherapy or the immune checkpoint blockade really unleashes the activity of the immune cells and really boosts their function. So it helps them to kill the tumor cells much better. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to ask next. So we're talking about like eradication, like some of these tumors are, you know, we're talking about physical sort of structural changes at that point, because they get quite large. We're talking about them being completely removed over time with immunotherapies or is that still a surgery and then some immunotherapy type arrangement? Yes, some of the clinical trials that are ongoing and that have recently been completed have shown really striking results where they they class them as a complete remission. So Mm. once they, you know, they'll give the patients immunotherapy, once they go in and resect the the tumours with surgery, they see that the tumour is totally necrotic. So this means that the immune cells have done a very good job and the immunotherapy has done a very good job. Um, so th- th- it is quite remarkable some of the the changes that we're seeing in some of the treatments. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Is uh, how's your PhD student going? Is she going to finish? <laughs> yes, Marina is doing an excellent <laughs> job, and she is going to finish. And she is very interested. In, and this is another thing we're also interested in. I'm not just looking at the treatments and what we can do to boost immune cell mm. function once a tumor has started. But Marina is also looking at. We're very interested now in looking at this early onset disease um, and early onset bowel cancer. And so because it has increased dramatically over the re- very recent years, it's unlikely that genetic our genetics have changed that quickly yeah. over a short amount of time. So it's very likely that there are uh, environmental impacts driving that early bowel cancer um, development. And so Marine is really interested in looking at some of the interactions of the immune cells within the gut, within the environment of the gut, and some of the triggers that may be involved in in driving early onset bowel cancer. God, that's scary stuff. Are there any cultures in the world where these numbers aren't as bad marina like is there yes. you know a small island in off the coast of greece where you know this is just not happening 
for whatever reason, dietary. Oh, I tell you, if that was the case, I'd be living there. I mean, life is all for me. <laughs> but um, look, I can't tell you exactly which country. I don't know. But but there, it's definitely um, the kind of diet. So we're talking about now with the Western diet, we definitely are seeing increased rates mm. of this. Um, but the more Mediterranean diet, you're, you're seeing associations with less um, cases of bowel right. cancer. And that's interesting because that really plays to the what Lisa was talking about just now about the environment within the gut. And so when we talk about the environment within the gut, we're not just talking about the immune cells and the tumor cells and the normal cells of the epithelium within the bowel, but we're also talking about the gut microbes. Yeah. And so we're talking about those the, those bacteria, the viruses, the fungi that live with us and are, and are good for us, but it's that interaction between them and the immune cells that are obviously um, affected mm. in this case. Mm. Marina, can I prevent my onset of bowel cancer? potential onset by drinking Yakult? Yeah. <laughs> See, this is the thing. There's this so is an many, important question. It's a great question. I, I love that because there's so many of these things. There's even like probiotics that everybody are popping now. Like they're yeah, popping yeah. that more than they are what, you know, what people were popping back in the 90s. But my point being that I think, I think moving forward, everybody's realizing the importance of the significance of the gut microbes. The, to answer your question, no, because there's not a lot of studies to show that. But we are headed in the right direction. I'm glad people are thinking that way because they're associating what they're putting in their bodies with health and, you know, disease outcomes. Mm. And so one of them is bowel cancer. And so that's and that's really important. And yeah, I suppose that. one of the big things there is like there's one thing like what you're talking about a top up, <laughs> but but actually preventing the destruction of your um, microbiome or damage to it. Yes. You know, and we we know some things around that. We know you know antibiotics cause problems. Antibiotics, right? yeah. So if you can avoid those, and sometimes you can't, but you know if you can avoid those, mm. um, great. And of course things like alcohol yeah. um, and other toxins that really damage our, our microbiome, and then just eating crap. Yeah, you or know? even and not even crap. Red meat. Red meat yeah, is, red meat, is yeah. like like high high highly processed foods but also the um um increase in red meat in your diet that's all yeah it's all associated with with bowel cancer so there's some good things we can do yeah folks we're going to take a break for some tunes and when we come back uh we'll have a surgeon in from uh he's he's a chatty surgeon too you know some of them then yeah you come across you come across some of them and yeah i don't know nothing against surgeons but sometimes they're good at holding a knife but not at holding a conversation, yeah. dare I say. Uh, I'm just going to get a lot of hate mail for that. But, <laughs> uh, but it's good to get a very communicative surgeon in the studio, and we'll be doing that in just a few minutes. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple R. Uh, I don't know, Laura, did you hear there there was actually an announcement during the announcement break for the very show we're on? For the very show everyone's listening to, yeah, just say, in case. When you hear your own voice, uh, it freaks you out. Um, weird stuff. Anyway, in the studio, we still have Marina Yakow, final year PhD student um, from the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute. She's stuck around. Thank I'm you. Gl- I'm glad. Yeah, it's good to have you stick around. It's hard to push me through, clearly. <laughs> the food jokes are still coming out. And we also have um, Professor Murley, who is the Professor of Surgery and Precinct Head of the Department of Surgery out at the Austin Precinct, as well as Director of the HPB and Liver Transplant Surgery Unit at Austin Health. Really, do you get weekends off doing all that? Well, except, I do, I do, <laughs> uh, except that this weekend's full on because I'm here. Yeah, right, okay. Uh, now, so, so give us a bit of an overview. What sort of surgeries do you do, like in a given month? Like what, what's the variation of surgeries that you would do? So, um, well, I'm a general surgeon and also um, 
hepatobiliary surgeon, so I, I balance between gallbladder operations, hernias, but predominantly liver and pancreatic operations. Mm-hmm. So pancreatic cancer, liver cancer, um, and the predominant amount of liver cancers are bowel cancer that spread to the liver. That forms the bulk of our work yeah so when do you first see a patient like we, we've been talking a lot yeah. with marina and lisa about diagnosis and often that being quite late due mm-hmm. to a lack of you know early diagnosis uh, systems at the moment when when does the patient see you and at what sort of stages do you typically so see? by by nature bowel cancer that's spread to the liver mm. defines it as stage four right whether it's one little spot or a hundred little spots they're, they're still stage four and stage so, four meaning it all, all it means is that the bowel cancer is spread outside the primary organ right. and spread by usually by bloodstream or right. lymphatics to other organs. Okay. So it, it doesn't tell us very much apart from the fact that it's spread. Okay. Um, so I would see them often through our oncology colleagues. So someone's had bowel surgery and then developed can- liver cancer later on. Right. Or they might actually present from the GP. GPs are family practitioners have done due diligence, liver function tests are abnormal, they do an ultrasound, and there's all these lumps in the liver, they'll come mm. to me, and we might find the primary later. So it's, it's a, a couple of different ways of uh, presentation. How do you go about that, finding the primary? I always found it interesting. I mean, you know, can you just do a full-body MRI top to bottom? And uh, Yeah, usually, they, initially, they'll come with an ultrasound of the abdomen, right. and then they'll have a CT scan. That may actually show the primary. Mm-hmm. Then there's a... Um, a nucleus scan called PET scan, which is positron emission yep. tomography, radioactive glucose, basically, uh, and that would show the primary. And then identify the primary, then you would actually do an endoscopy to confirm it. Yeah, the hairs on the back of my neck always go up when someone says PET scan because many, many moons ago, there was a professor named Gary Egan right. who uh, was initiating the PET scan program out at Austin. And I did a deal with him. I almost did my honours degree with him, but I did a deal that I would be one of his initial subjects in the PET scan he was he was initiating out there if he came on the show. <laughs> it was the most expensive interview I've personally ever done. It was, it was like this thing for an hour. <laughs> and somewhere on the disc, somewhere in my home, I've sure. got uh, that scan data. <laughs> but uh, but but now it's used quite um, commonly. And what, why would you use a PET scan versus a an MRI, for example. So I think uh, important to remember that every scan has a different value. Mm. A CT scan is easy to do. Yep. You can cover the whole body. MRIs yep. are done for specific areas of the body. Yep. The magnet, uh, people think that you put a person into a scanner and hit a button. Mm. No. In MRI, you actually have to adjust the magnets. To, uh, so the, the way they set up the magnets for you and me would be very different. Yeah, yeah. The body habitus makes a difference. PET scan covers the whole body. Right. The value of PET could be, one is to identify tumors that may not be seen on other scans, activity-wise. Mm-hmm. But the m- most important value, and we published on this, is looking at disease response. So traditionally, you treat somebody with chemotherapy and look at the size shrinkage. But we've shown that if the metabolic activity drops, that's a better indicator of right. what happens long term. Right. Interesting. Now, so you find someone, they've got a, they've got a, a mass or they've got some sort of spots on their liver. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the scans are indicating that there's something there to do. What, what I want to know about is that the science of the surgery and how that's changed over sure. the decades. Because I still have the, you know, I want to have this image that it's all laser scalpels and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what what, what is it like in the surgical suite these days, and how different is that from when, when you first started, for example? So if you think about the surgical suite, it's a protected environment for mm. the surgeon. It's a nice teamwork, which, yep. which is enjoyable. But if you just go back 50 years ago, mm. if a, a patient with bowel cancer had one little lesion in the liver, they got a pat on the back. 
right. it was considered to be incurable. Yep, yep. We understood the biology of the disease now. Now, it doesn't, we, don't, we asked two questions. Has it responded to chemotherapy? Mm-hmm. Can we remove everything that's left behind right. and leave enough liver t- to survive? Yep. You know, the liver actually regenerates itself, so they only have to survive short-term until it regenerates itself. How long does that take for that? Like, like, so there's so many questions there. Like, so if you take everything but 10% of my liver and I can survive at that, how much do you, you have need to about have? 30%, about 30%, 25 30% right. of normal liver. Right. So most patients with bowel cancer who come to see us have yep. already had chemotherapy. So it's not normal liver. Right. So we, we have ways of measuring what we're going to leave behind, either physically mm-hmm. or, act- or using functional methods. Mm. Now, we can make a liver. Liver usually re- regenerates in about six weeks. It'll come to about 80% of its original volume. Interestingly, when tumors grow in the liver, the liver is actually maintaining its own volume. So even though the tumors are growing, that's why you don't actually see a lot of um, right. liver failure until very late. Wow. Now, there are techniques where I can actually make the liver grow, the opposite side of the liver grow within 10 days. Wow. But it causes a lot of inflammation, and mm. that inflammation is the enemy of cancer treatment because it can stimulate tumor growth so that's a balance and that's where lisa's work comes in as well understanding yeah. the immunity understanding inflammation and getting a balance yeah it's fascinating i remember i i was involved as a physics person yeah. in about five or six surgeries about 25 years ago so these were hysterectomies and i was the laser guy we had to do some photodynamic therapy yeah. um, trials and this was at the old rural women's hospital and i remember going into the surgical suite and everything was just like I was really a fish out of water because I was, you know, dirty physics guy, basically, is the way I described me, and really had to obey a lot of rules that I wasn't aware of in terms of what I could touch, what I couldn't touch, where things had to be done. Are there these days, I mean, are you making use of robotics or other aspects of, you know, more detailed sort of microscopy and so forth while you're, you know, is it just you looking into the body or is it enhanced in various ways? It depends. So we can do liver surgery laparoscopically, robotically, or open mm-hmm. um, and and the robot is, is up in the news a lot these days to me a robot is just another instrument yep i like to just grab the robot in do the operation set it up but the way it's set up now is it sits in a in a in a in a single theater and right. most public hospitals don't have access yeah, to them course. in the upper abdomen it's got a particular role in the lower abdomen so colorectal surgeons and urologists would in a narrow environment they can do a lot of keyhole work but in the upper abdomen, we most of the time can de- deal with laparoscopically. Mm. As we go on to just removing the tumors and not taking big segments of liver, yep. it becomes harder to do that if you've got multiple lesions. And we sometimes now mix surgical resection with uh, putting a needle in and ablating the tumor in place. So it's a combination. It's almost like a, a multidisciplinary approach. Mm. Or you, know, it's, you don't win a war by just sending your infantry in. You yeah, send yeah. your cavalry, infantry, artillery, and, and and your air force. Yeah, and, and when you say ablation, do you mean is that like a a, a needle goes a, in and heat? just heats it? Yeah. Just heats it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not laser, not uh, just well, arc it, or anything. It's just a it's just a hot rod. It's a it's a hot rod, or it yep. could be microwave. Yep. Now, lasers were there. In fact, my PhD was on yeah. laser treatment of liver tumors, uh, but. Ease of use, microwave has taken over. It's a shorter time, and um, it's more used in primary liver cancers. But we use them. So, for example, if I if you've got three three tumors on the right side of the liver, two on the surface, we can remove them. Mm. 
if there's a small tumor in the deep deep in the liver rather than removing half the liver we would actually put a needle in and ablate it the radiologist will come in and do that for us right right that's fascinating so, yeah I, I wasn't aware you were using microwaves it's quite um and uh, you know it's basically microwave right just it's just heats yeah, the water in the yep. in that part of the liver yep. and it boils it off and, and off it goes and yep. is there anything is there scarring as a result of that process or yes there yeah. is but the liver is quite fascinating because usually the liver grows back so mm. sometimes you might have tumors that are uh, next to blood, big blood vessels, yep. you give them chemotherapy, and it shrinks. But as it shrinks, the liver grows back, and there's big space between the big blood vessels and the tumor. Yep. So sometimes you end up with little ablated spots. Most times the liver grows back into it. Mm. Marina, it's interesting talking to me really about what he does. So much of it is about the liver yeah. and less about the bowel. You know, like and, yeah. and that being such a because obviously the liver is something that you know we, we die very quickly yeah. if our liver is not functioning. Um, it, and yet, is there a lot of sort of promotional work around these these early stage tests for bowel cancer being about essentially giving your liver enough time? You of know, course, like I mean, yeah. that's that's the reality of it, right? I mean, really needs to be able to leave you enough liver so that we'll grow back. Yeah. And if you don't do that early enough, you you're in trouble. Exactly. I mean, as he as he as he very well um, put it at the beginning, he, patients don't present to him until they're at stage four. Mm. And so essentially, if you're able to detect, detect that a lot earlier, you don't have to see him. I mean, he's a great guy and everything, but it's, it's better to not go yeah, to not him. Not to because, go to him. Yeah. yeah, because of course, if it's in your liver already, we're already at the really end stages of those disease. Because if it's in your liver, I mean, I'm sure Morelli will know more. You know, it can also metastasize to your lungs, something yep. I think is the next place that it metastasizes to. And so, you know, we're talking, yeah, large scale type of, tumor is almost a lot of places in the body yeah really with the the various components of the body here when we're talking about things like parts of our intestinal system um i mean that seems incredibly complicated to me you know the muscular all the all the things that it yeah. does i mean how do you maintain you know when you're removing some of these tumors and stuff how do you maintain function like how does that work we just don't have to because the body is very good at healing right. itself so i mean we if you remove parts of the bowel and join it together yep we suture them together, but it's the body that heals itself. Right. And it's amazing. I mean, we, I don't think we still understand fully the healing processes. The fact that the liver, the liver is always regenerating. So at any one time, 2% of the liver cells are dying and 2% are multiplying. And therefore, it maintains its size. If I remove half the liver, it increases. We're st- still scratching the surface. And we don't know uh, how the immune system works on it. The liver is full of... So the liver basically works as a filter. So all the blood from your gut and the microbiome you were talking about yep. is constantly sending bugs into your portal venous system. The liver clears it and it traps it. So it's in, in many ways, you might find a patient with bowel cancer full of liver mates and nothing else there. Mm. The liver's doing the job. The next filter are your lungs. The lung doesn't grow back, but yep. you've got two of them. Yeah, yeah. And then it can go to any other, any other organ. So yeah. we, we rely a lot on um, the body's capacity to heal. The surgeons take the credit, but uh, the patient does the healing. <laughs> I can imagine that at one point when you're, you're choosing which elective to go into years back, you go, oh, look, uh, which of the organs are regenerative? I want to go into one. Not this heart and lung business. <laughs> it's too hard. You want That's one where, you, where they're well, on your the side. Only, it's the only organ that actually regenerates the parenchyma. Yeah, right. So the skin will grow back yep. when you cut it. Yep. It'll heal itself. But this is the only organ that grows back. Yeah. So, so the argument for taking little parts of the liver, let it grow back, so we can go back and operate again, is good. It's good for business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, when it comes back, I, you know, you can't yeah. get. It's hard to get your head around the fact that you know you take it down to thirty percent and it can come back yeah. to eighty percent in such a short amount of time. 
the liver that comes back, and I know it's regenerating all the time, what's different? What are the consequences? Consequences to reinfection, you know, is it the, sa- is it the same? Yeah. Or is it better? Or is it worse? So the, the way it regenerates, the liver has eight segments. Each of them has an artery and a vein and a bile duct going in and a vein coming out. Now, when you remove the liver, if you take the segments, so if I take your right half of your liver, the left liver enlarges. The right liver does not grow back, which is why now with, uh, with liver tumors, we remove the tumor only and preserve the segments so that the segments will grow back. So if you get cancer, come back again, your options are open. The liver functions like it always does. There's really no increased incidence of infections or anything like that. Hmm. So, you know, there's, you can push this concept to a point that can we take out some of the liver and grow the liver and put it back in there. And we haven't come to that point yet. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. How long are you normally in the operating room for when you do? I mean, I know it's obviously varied, but well, like sort of you, average. When you say you, me, myself, or any surgeon, it mm. depends on how fast the surgeon operates, yeah. I guess. But well, let's assume you're these, really fast. <laughs> <laughs> these operations take six to eight hours. Yeah, That's wow. Not all, not all uh, operations are actual operating time. There's anesthetic time. Yep. So one of the things that's changed is the quality of the anesthesia and the quality of care in the intensive care afterwards. So we can take get anyone. You could be 80, 85, 90. We can get you through an operation. Yep. The important part is the impact it has on your quality of life yeah. afterwards. Yep. So there's a lot of thought goes beyond about what happens after, before. Yeah. But most operations would take anything between 6 to 8 hours, 10 hours. I think it's fascinating. So people will get on a plane to Canberra and they'll expect a meal. Uh, it's like 50 minutes. You know? <laughs> do, do, you, do you get breaks? I oh, mean, do you, what, how yes. does that work? So we, we do take breaks, but uh, particularly with liver resection, once the liver is removed, while they are removing, the, while we are operating on the liver, the anesthetist will keep the, the pressures very low. Yep. And when you take the liver out, we will actually pack and send it off for frozen section to check, make sure the margins are clear. Mm. We actually have a break right. for 20 minutes till that comes back. Right. There's a lot of work on micro breaks now for surgeons yeah. to have every 20 minutes, have two-minute breaks. But we usually have uh, song. The, the hardest, the diff, most difficult part is to actually organize the pizza to arrive at the time <laughs> we have a break. <laughs> I, you know, something tells me I don't want to wake up with a bit of salami. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, we missed a bit of salami. We don't know where it went. We think Merrily ate it, but we're not 100% sure. We keep count. We keep count of the salami slices. Um, I think, uh, look, it, it's, it's amazing stuff. I mean, I mean, from your perspective as a surgeon, I mean, essentially you want Marina and Lisa to put you out of business, right, in a sense. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's the goal. And and what, I mean, what do you what do you tell patients as they as they leave? And I guess their carers and their family members. Some of them have very substantial roles in their ongoing care, especially if they've been stage four. So when I elect to operate on a patient, I tell them two things. One is they've got to be comfortable with what we're telling them. It's a multidisciplinary approach. So oncologists, yep. radiologists, offer them second opinions, have a chat to the family, what the expectations are. Yep. But if once they decided, my argument is that I would tell them that you and I will be meeting each other until one of us dies. Right. It's lifelong follow-up. Right. Yep. I've had patients who had recurrence 10 years later. Yep. You pick it up early, you can deal with it. But it's, it's a journey. And I think you don't talk to patients about a treatment episode. You talk about the journey yeah. from the time they come to you until follow-up is yeah, indeed. stopped. Yeah. I think as, um, as amazing as... as you know that that sounds that that is ongoing. Yeah. The fact that it is ongoing is such great news. Like as you said, like years ago, it'd be like pat on the back and yep. off they go. And now you you're essentially, I, I suspect many of your patients are dying from other things. Is that yep. fair to say? But yeah. it's just funny that you said that because I would actually tell them that I'd like to get this 
cancer out of the equation so you can die from heart attacks right. and we blame the cardiologists. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's and it's interesting. I mean, we've seen that in so many areas now, HIV and various yeah. things where, you know, what was, you know, literally the cause of death 20, 30 years ago now is, is not anymore. And, that's and I think that, that's where the immunotherapy comes in. I mm. think the side effects of immunotherapy compared to cytotoxic chemotherapy is less yep. and it's more tolerable and we can convert this into think of it like tu- tuberculosis make it into a chronic disease you never get rid of it yep and uh, but it's there but you keep it under control yep for your whole life yep yep Murali, thank you very much for coming in and giving us this perspective of a surgeon. I think it's great to hear that, you know, first of all, that you care so much about your patients, but there's such a, an ongoing conversation with them because I think a, a yeah. lot of people in healthcare feel very, you know, detached from their healthcare experience and, and you know, that that's where a lot of the fear and anxiety, I think, comes in. So glad to hear things are going well out there at Austin and uh, keep up the amazing work. Great place to work. Excellent. Thank you. And Marina, um, I think just a, a final message for people. Where, where should they go to find out more about you know, bowel cancer, about early screening? Is it even possible to get really the early screening before 50? Like what, yeah, what's, definitely what's possible. the deal? Just pay money for it, unfortunately. That's how it yep. is. So, of course, if you're 50 and above, you'll get a free test kit, as you mentioned mm-hmm. for yourself, you got in the mail. But otherwise, just go to your local pharmacy grab a test kit from the shelf and and buy it and go home and do it. We talked about how simple it was. But honestly, I have way, you know, one too many people in my life that have been affected by this, both very, very young, but also um, a lot older. And one of them was indeed my grandfather, actually. Um, And so it's really important to not have to see your loved ones go through that. So don't put your loved ones in that situation to see you go through that either. And just go get it done. Um, If you want any more information, definitely come... um, you know, go to our website at, at ONJ and see some of the amazing work we're doing there um, on bowel cancer. But obviously, there's a lot of great other great avenues like Bowel Cancer Australia. They have a beautiful website there, mm. and you can get some details. But also, of course, number one place is go speak to your GP, right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Or your pharmacist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, they, they've yeah. got it there. Great. And I think, uh, you know, these tests, I'm not sure how much they are, but uh, well worth it. Dollars. Yeah, well, well worth it. And peace of mind. Peace of mind. And as you say, with the young people coming out as being a very high risk of bad outcomes group, you know, not the incident so much, but um, but certainly if you are one, that's that's probably. Just sounds like a great fortieth birthday present, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I agree. there you go, hundred percent. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, when your birthday's coming up, <laughs> isn't it, Dr. Laura? I think uh, in a couple of weeks. I'll be waiting for one of those tests from you, Shane. Oh, you're getting I'll it now. You, you are yeah, getting it. Go. I'll give it to you on the air. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go, folks. Uh, we're going to take a break for some station announcements. Marina, thanks so much for organising the show today, too. We really thanks. appreciate all the guests. Thanks for having me. It's great. I should also just say uh, we did have several um, uh, consumers involved yes. in this process, a patient and a carer, uh, coming in originally. But as is the case with many chronic illnesses, uh, things come up and ch- changed plans have to be accepted at the last minute. So we don't have that patient voice in the studio today, and I'm sorry about that, but we did do our best. Um, and unfortunately, with some of these illnesses, we can't predict uh, yep. what's going to happen. So all the more reason... Um, you know, if you don't want that in your future, um, do these tests and do them early. You listen to Einstein and Gega? We're going to take a short break for some announcements. Triple R. Ah, well, we're back. Uh, Dr. Laura, some news for us for the week. 
Look, I know last week I spoke about Drosophila, and I'm going to do it again. Last week, researchers were making their lifespans longer after they'd seen Deb corpses, but I couldn't go past what researchers were doing with Drosophila that was published this week, which is inducing them to give virgin births. I mean, sorry, sorry, what the? Yeah, so you know that a lot of species in the animal kingdom actually undergo virgin births, or parthenogenesis is right, the yeah. scientific okay. term. Of course, yeah. now you know what I mean, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And of course, of course this means virgin creation. Right. So, Right. So loads and loads of animals actually undergo this. Not mammals. We need both maternal and paternal genomes to come together to make a viable offspring. But lots of different birds, reptiles, probably dinosaurs, it is speculated, actually undergo parthenogenesis. And this is really, really obviously quite hard to study because you would never know, you know, if you saw some birds going around, you know, mm. did you have a dad or not? No, a lot of them don't. I mean, there are female-only lizards. Most of the examples that we know have actually been discovered when there's been immaculate conceptions in zoos. Right. Quite recently, actually, just last year, there was um, a shark born in an aquarium where there was only females. That was an example of parthenogenesis. That's cool. And also very <laughs> recently, just shown last month, um, a crocodile gave birth um, in a single sex-only way as well. She was on her own for 16 years, this crocodile. Wow. That'd be and, kind of weird if you're the keeper. I know, I know, I know. So and all of a sudden... You know, there's yeah. little baby the crocodiles. It's like, what? Uh, what's going on? Yeah, their babies, ninety-nine percent identical and female. So you know, it's it's yeah, right. it, it's rather be mouse. So anyway, in this, in so a lot of um, you know animals will give spontaneous um, births of their own single sex without males, and this will often happen in times of stress or when there's just not males around, maybe women just give up and they just do it themselves. So in this study that okay. was published this week in Current Biology, um, the normal Drosophila, which is everybody's favourite fruit fly, um, generally um, gives birth to its offspring by sexual reproduction. But there are some species of fruit flies that go via the pathogenesis route and can spontaneously conceive on their own. And so the scientists sequenced the genomes of both both types of flies and said, okay, what genes are different? Because they're going to be the ones that are maybe involved in a bit of this pathogenesis. So they mm. narrowed it down to a certain amount of genes and then they did lots of gene deletion combinations. Now, to hammer in on the types of genes that would actually induce fruit flies to do this, this took 220,000 flies in six years. This is science Whoa. sometimes. Yep. Okay. yep, so it took a while. But that when they nailed it, what they found is that they could induce Drosophila by fiddling with these genes, by gene editing technologies, to induce them to give um, birth on their own, so asexual reproduction. And what they find is that, you know, the flies would wait about 40 days, so way over half their lifetime. If they were without males, that's when they'd do it. That's when they would right. spontaneously. That's as long as they, just as long as they would just go yeah, on yeah, waiting yeah. and they'd be yeah. like, right, I okay. can just do this on my own. You know, maybe yeah. their confidence listed, lifted or maybe they were just sick of waiting. But what was really interesting is that this was a heritable trait. Right. So their offspring that they would give birth to, those girls, passing it down to the next generation, they would also be spontaneous asexual reproducers as well. Wow. So, okay, why should we care? Twofold, Shane. I'm going to give you two okay. reasons why, they, why half a million flies died for this research. One, it was the first incidence of where it could be induced. Okay. That's amazing, by fiddling with something. So, you know, there are certain endangered populations where you might want to induce reproduction when, you, you know, there isn't males yeah. around or you've got dwindling populations. But something that's actually really interesting is that you could, the actual spontaneous pathogenesis which can occur... Um, is sometimes increasing in incidence in pests, pests, agricultural pests, and people want to squash this out. Because if not, you get huge female reproduction mm. and doubling rates in certain insects where you don't want it. Yeah, so yeah. 
learning how to fiddle with it um, could be the magic they need to cut down on these pests. Interesting. So I'm still good. I'm still useful in the human population. Well, actually, I'm very, old. interestingly, in mammals, they did it for the first time by fiddling in vitro. No need for a male. You can do it with fe- two females if you CRISPR engineer the female uh, genome to substitute for the male gene. So we can get rid of you soon. Then maybe obsolete. Stay tuned. <laughs> nice to know. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Laura. Yeah, um, uplifting for yeah, you. When you told me you were doing a story on the virgin birth, I was a little concerned. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, good to know. About Real science here, people. Real science. Uh, Luke's been doing our Twitter feed. A huge thank you to the team. Uh, from the Olivia Newton-John Centre that have put together a lot of the guests and program for today. Really appreciate that. I'm Dr Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We're going to hand over to Edith. Have a great Sunday, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. And feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.